Hello all, Jesse from Slice by Slice here. Sorry, we know that the episode was late. I ended up getting a really bad cold that turned into a sinus infection and we had to postpone our recording by a week. And we were currently not ahead an episode or two like we had been in the past for a buffer. We got together to record this Jeremy Saunier episode for you all and we powered through it with the power of medication and ran into a major technical issue as Josh's audio file was corrupted. I was able to repair it, but this put us even further behind. So I've managed to edit half of the episode before Thanksgiving, which covers Jeremy's first two films. And this was going to be a really long episode anyway, so we decided to just split it in two. You guys are going to get part two next week. We thank you so much for being patient, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as revenge, Nazi punks, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Holy shit, we're fucking back. I know, right? It's been a, it's been a minute. <laughs> I think it's been like close to three months since we've had an episode proper. I know, right? Because we recorded the Halloween episodes in September, right? Yes. And then we didn't record again to your Halloween party, which was not a full-fledged episode, but was a lot of fucking fun. Yeah. And then uh, we're late. We're, we're, <laughs> we're aware this episode is late. Jesse got a cold that turned into a sinus infection that turned into bronchitis. And I even meant to record or have Josh record a whoopsie daisies announcement. We're still alive. The episode's going to be a few days to a week late. And uh, I was too sick and I just forgot. And I had to get a voice back to do this. <laughs> I don't know. I was totally prepared to have like this. We we had a long break because we did like yeah. break from recording, but I was expecting to be on time. So it's kind of weird having a late episode like this. Yeah. I mean, shit happens. But in that time, I managed to get caught up on a couple movies and a TV show. Holy shit. I finally saw us and Child's Play. Uh huh. I haven't made it to Dr. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't made it to Dr. Sleep yet, which you saw. Yeah. I'm jealous. You need to see that shit. I'll save, I'll save it for once you've seen it. Child's Play. I'm so glad that's all the time you spent on us. <laughs> I was going to go back to it. <laughs> Damn it. Child's Play, I thought was fucking awesome. I do not think it was like a true Child's Play reboot, right? No. Um, but as a horror movie with very realistic roots with like the smart devices taking over and killing us. I thought it was fucking awesome. I honestly feel like somebody had an idea to make a movie with an AI fucking doll that was synced to all these smart devices that you could get from like Amazon or something and pitched it. And the studios were like, this is pretty close to child's play. Let's just name them Chucky and the kid Andy and call it child's play. <laughs> like, I honestly feel like they did that, but made like a pretty fucking entertaining horror movie. Yeah. I thought it was, I had no problems with the movie on its own. Like you say in a vacuum um, to me, it was kind of like, and the wife gives me shit for this, but like the poltergeist reboot, I like the poltergeist reboot on its own, right? But it doesn't, it can't, it was it, just there and it was, it was a pretty 
faithful remake. Yeah, but there's but there's like the soul is missing, and I I th- thought the same thing about Child's Play, but I still thought it was fine as a movie. Like if you separate them, it's it's good. I liked Mark Hamill as fucking Chucky's voice. You are my buddy, and the fact that he can't sing, and they like <laughs> it's like the doll was damaged goods. <laughs> And fucking at Mark Hamill himself, we fucking love you. <laughs> Shit was awesome. Okay, as a big Star Wars nerd, like it was really cool to to hear him in that role. But yeah, I mean, it, it was different, but it was like a, it was a good horror movie. Yeah, us, I liked. I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. It was definitely a well made movie, and it had some fucking like oh shit moments, like when the. Uh, friend's family that he like competes with when they got murdered out of nowhere. Like I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Like, it's just like the lights go out, they come on in, we're all getting shanked, you know? And, and I thought it was neat. And it definitely had creepy scenes. Like when the family originally busted in their cabin and has them all sitting there and they're just staring at them with the creepy faces and shit. Like I liked all that. I got the whole vibe. I felt like they went too deep on the mythos. The less I would have known about it, the better. Oh, yeah. When they went into the whole, spoilers, when they went into the whole cloning thing and the rabbits and all that. And they did leave it partially open-ended because if you tried to explain the mythos, it would have fell apart. But I still felt like it was too much. Like, I kind of figured out that they had swapped kind of early on. But even then, I doubted myself because it didn't make sense with the established mythos. Yeah. But it didn't make any sense if they didn't swap either. Like, who controls who and shit like that. But it was definitely original. It was original. And like you said, the scene when the other family gets killed, like in the living room and upstairs and all that, that, and I'll get into that in more detail in a little bit later for a particular reason. But uh, that part I liked. But like the end of the movie, it really felt like somebody wrote the movie. And it's like, hey, man, we're shooting in four hours. You, you got that ending yet? And it was just kind of like <laughs> shoved everything in there at the end. Um, they had the one scene with the kid and the fire and the other yeah. kid walks backwards to walk him into the fire or something like that. I really would have loved to have seen more of that. Yeah. Of the, the back and forth struggle between the doppelgangers would have felt more way missed opportunity there. I did like the the deeper hidden meaning like us is U.S., like the United yeah. States. And, Hands across America, motherfucker. And, <laughs> and it's like about like no matter how much you have, you always want more. And this and that, like that part was all really fucking cool. I will say it does show that Jordan Pill was not just a one hit wonder. I feel like he has the chops to be a war director. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it definitely had the scenes. It was just. He's original. I'll give him that. And yep. he, he makes something that he wants to make. And like I so said, there was a lot of good parts there. I kind of want to watch the movie a second time to see if I give it a more fair chance. But it makes me want to watch the Twilight Zone show more since he's like the host. Oh, and Because yeah, yeah, yeah. that was very much like a long Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Which I dig the, like the weird normal shit. But I finally saw it. Um, I, I really wish I would have seen Dr. Sleep, though, before we recorded this episode. It's, it's just really hard for me to get out sometimes. I'll hold on to it. I got three main points that are embedded in here, but I really liked it. Well, so, so Flanagan, he, he kept us proud. Here's what's funny, dude. The whole time in the movie, I'll go ahead and say this part. I fucking forgot he did it. Oh, really? <laughs> and it gets to the credits, and I'm like, oh, fucking yeah, I forgot. <laughs> That's so much shit I was about to say makes sense now. I'll keep my mouth shut. That movie's a little too new for us to talk about anyway. True. But, uh, but yeah, it'll be good when I see that. Here's a divisive one between us. American Horror Story 1984. I fucking loved it other than the last couple episodes. I think Josh hated it the um, whole time. I can sum it up with if I had never seen a season of American Horror Story and I saw that first, I would refuse to watch the rest. Really? 
and it's not because it was made poorly. My biggest struggle with it is there's times where it seems like it's supposed to be satire and it's not over the top enough and times when it there's no point in being serious and it was like watching a bad soap opera. Like not like Guiding Light right. or, or like like a a crappy soap opera. And I really think it, there was just so much where it was trying to be campy and did it the wrong way. And this has come from motherfuckers that understand horror. Then it broke my brain trying to figure out those kind of missteps. That's how it was to me. I know you saw it differently, like come across the table. We, we see right, this so right. differently. <laughs> well, to me, the whole thing was campy and satire every step of the way. And I loved that part of it. The only episode to me that even came off as serious was the lady in white episode, which I don't want to go too much in spoilers because it's new, but I thought that was the best made episode of the season. And that was yeah. probably the most like the normal seasons. That, right. That's and exactly you probably enjoyed that one. It. But like, I know when we were only two or three episodes in and I was talking about doing side episodes about the show, cause I liked it so much. And you and your wife, like, Oh, I fucking hate it. It's just so over the top eighties campy. And I'm like, but that's why I like it. I felt like they hit the eighties stuff just right. And threw everything in there in the way they needed. And then for some reason you guys hate on, when Richard Ramirez was doing something, there's like the Satan, 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 Satan. I fucking love that because that's how his crazy ass really thought. I, I think it was either overdone or underdone. Like it couldn't figure out which direction it wanted to go with the vibe. Like, is it going to, are, are you in his headspace? Are we taking this seriously? Or is it funny and campy? I don't know who that actor was, but he was fucking awesome. I thought as Richard Ramirez. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that. The acting, the the story to a certain extent, how it was shot, all that stuff. Uh, opening was a little tiresome, but we're in a post Stranger Things world, so, right? You know what I mean. Um, none of that can I, can I shit on. It's just like had it come from someone else, I'd be like, eh, whatever. It's like, no, no, these motherfuckers understand how to make this shit. This <laughs> needs to. They should have went farther with it. I do like that they swapped Emma Roberts and Billy Lord on like who was the bad girl and who was like the good girl. Yeah. So that was like a nice little s switch it around, you know. Is the slasher fan? I loved the whole fucking season. Other than the finale, the last episode, literally nothing happened. And kind of how I feel like with Apocalypse. I thought Apocalypse was a really good season. And then the last episode was fucking terrible. Yeah. It went out on a dud big time. I don't want to go too far into spoilers. And I'm about to get off the American Horror Story cake. <laughs> but this just kind of bothered me. I mean, I guess each season could possibly be in its own dimension, parallel universe. Some of them are linked and some aren't. Yeah. But the fact that. Satan could give a shit about saving his own son, Michael, or, or bringing him back to life. But Richard Ramirez, he fucking brought him back. That part was awesome. How they took turns murdering him like yes. every 40 minutes. Uh, that I like. It, it was fun. I just, I felt like the last episode was uneventful and I wanted to see Billy Idol. <laughs> so did Satan and Richard Ramirez. <laughs> Billy fucking Idol. But, uh, I don't know. It was, it was fun. We'll just have to see what they do next year. Um, I do want to say we, we got to hop in the episode soon, but tell me about, uh, Halloween Horror Nights. I'm not going to do a full-blown review here. I sorted some stuff into my list of uh, least favorite to most favorite. I was already sick when we left. The Ugh. wife got sick when we were down there. The first three days down there, we spent 27 hours in bed sleeping, not morning. Oh, um, I was going to say, that's not that bad. But uh, we still made it through. I do want to preface this with, I've been going for a few years, and I totally understand, and, and people that... People that already know this will know why I'm saying this. And people that don't know this, just to let you know, I'm well aware that all the houses have usually two casts and you can get runs. You may get a good cast, a bad cast. Okay. Shit changes throughout the season. The props break. People get changed out and you can just flat out have a bad run on a house where the, the scares aren't timed because it's all conga line. They don't pulse you through. So you get what you get. 
With all that said, based on the runs I got, because we just get express pass and go one night and we haul ass through the, all the houses in one night. If we ever set it up where I can actually go one year. You have to. <laughs> I know, I know. I, you guys have to understand, I've never actually been. So like, I'm like, oh, I want to hear about it. We're probably going to have to do two nights just so I can thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> I'm scared. I don't know how big next year is going to be because it's the 30th anniversary. Ooh. And I've been trying to tell the wife, like, you, we may have to plan on two nights. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, I do want to do uh, my rankings. So at number 10 is going to be us. And us was added late in the game it was okay. not a planned house it was supposed to be a uh, a tooth fairy house original if i remember right and like they had very little time to do the house they built the whole scene with the the rich family with okay. the living room the upstairs all that you walk through that house they built the living room of the cabin you walk through that they put a lot of fucking work into it for how little time they have i'll give them that but I understand I'm not a fan of the movie, so it already wasn't going to work for me even if I wanted it to. But you can – there's only so many scares you can do walking around the corner. Oh, there's somebody standing there holding scissors. You walk around another corner. Oh, there's somebody standing there holding scissors. You know, it gets old, and I'm, I'm waiting for the big reveal with the bunnies. Like, give okay. me – if you give me a big reveal at the end with bunnies, I'll give you a pass because y'all worked your asses off on this house. And you get this 10 by 10 room with like eight <laughs> fucking stuffed bunnies, Aww. and that's the end of the house. It's like, shit. <laughs> You're talking about people standing there with scissors. I'm just thinking of like our local haunted houses. Here. <laughs> That's like a normal. Um, number nine, Stranger Things. Okay. Um, last year, it was awesome. You know, Netflix approved the actors and shit, and they worked really hard. This year, a bunch of static scenes with mannequins. They did build the dim, the mind flare in the mall okay. at the end of the house, and that was something late that they did and that they put uh, they actually put actors in late, from my understanding, because we go at the very end of the year. So that was neat, but it just wasn't that good. It seems to me like going the middle of the the season of it would probably be the best because they've worked out the kinks and everybody's not exhausted and shit hadn't broken yet. Well, what sucks is that puts you right smack in hurricane season. It's when you don't live down there, it's fucking hard to plan. <laughs> I visit relatives <laughs> there during hurricane season yeah. right before you go every year. Just roll the dice. It's worth it. <laughs> Nightingale's Blood Pit had a terrible run, I guess. Empty rooms, no scares. Didn't didn't like it. But the theming of it and the makeup when I did get to see people was so good that I could tell had I gotten a good run, it would have been better. Hence why it's not dead last. I was about to say your rankings are kind of interesting when you're like, us is here, then Stranger Things. This one was fucking empty. Didn't have shit going on. Better. Like, like, what's happening with this list? Like, it's even scarier, man. At number seven, Ghostbusters. Ooh. I ain't afraid of no ghost. Had a pretty good run, and it was, it, was, it was fan service more than anything else. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't, wasn't a haunted house. It was fan service. But did uh, Bustin' make you feel good? A um, little bit. See, I, want, I have problems with it. There is the firehouse from the old Ghostbusters right? show that used to be there not involved in the facade for the house because they put the fucking zombie land scare zone in front of there. It was, I don't know. And there was all the bullshit that happened with the leaked photos before the house was announced and blah, 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 yada, yada. So I don't know if they got to do everything they wanted to do. Yeti. Yeti was fun. You know, number six, it was fun. Had a, I think a pretty decent run on it. There was nothing amazing, but it's pretty fun. Uh, number five, depths of fear. Depths of Fear was one that I know I didn't get a good run on and was still fun. And if I remember right, of course, all these in one night, there's a crawling dude on the ground that comes <laughs> out of the shadows right at the end of the house that that fucker got me. And there was something that came out of the the little, oh, what do they call them? 
the, the little puppet creatures that I mentioned when I mentioned it before, one came out from the ceiling and fucking got my ass. And it was a setup to where they distract you with other okay. shit in the ceiling. And then just when you think you're done looking at the ceiling, that shit happens. But at any rate, um, moving on to number four, Universal's Classic Monsters. Okay. We're talking Silver Age here? Yes. Got a great run on it. Um, was really fun. Where they had uh, Dracula at is there's like this post. And so you walk in and he can get to you from one side and then you walk around the post in the hallway and he can get to you from that side. And he didn't get me on the first side, but he went to get me on the other side. And as he was swinging over out, me and the wife do this so bad. I'm like, hi, Dracula. And he just leans out in front of me and waves at me. (laughs) (laughs) I go walking by, but it was a very well put together house. Top three are kind of a mix. Graveyard games at number three, as far immersion is huge for me. Graveyard games, I didn't do the, they did this big deal about the Facebook stuff where you can learn what's going on. And I didn't do any of that shit. I felt like I was somewhere else. It totally sucked me in. I don't get scared by this stuff. That's not why I go there. I like the immersion. I like feeling like I'm somewhere else in a conga line. Um, (laughs) But it sucked me in. Um, Number two, Killer Cons from Outer Space. Okay. Other than the girl at the end that I don't understand, it was just fun. It wasn't in a big enough uh, spot to do like the big fucking setup for inside the ship, but like I grinning ear to ear the whole time. <laughs> just like they, they had the shadow puppets. They did the biker scene. Of course, cotton candy pods everywhere. You get shot with the fucking popcorn guns going, okay. going, going through a hallway. And then at the very end, there's a hallway with Samara. I, I shit you not. I don't know why she's there. People have been talking about it on the forums. Samara from the ring? Yes. Fuck? You just look down this hallway and there's this girl with, with wet black hair over her face. I don't I don't remember that from the movie. Uh-uh. Number one, House of a Thousand Corpses. Really? I shit you not. Once again, the immersion thing. Like okay. You start off right here getting your fried chicken. And I say right here because I'm tugging at my shirt right now. Um, He's got a Captain Spaulding's <laughs> world famous fried chicken, which is very fitting because of his Halloween costume on the last episode. Exactly. But, you know, you start off from going into the service station till all the way through going underground and into Dr. Satan's lair. Just great. Just fucking sucks you right in. Also one house of the year. Um, and that's internally voted. When, if you ever hear about talking about zone of the year, house of the year, it's in it. And it has nothing to do about how many people liked it. It's about management and how they thought the cast did and shit. Anyways, I'm trying not to go on real long with this. I'm not going to talk about these. I'm just going to give you the rundown on my opinion of the scare zones. From worst to best, Vanity Ball, Zombieland, uh, Anarcade, uh, Vikings, and <laughs> Hellbilly Deluxe. Um, Hellbilly Deluxe really made you feel like you were somewhere else, not in the okay. park anymore. Um, Anarcade, which is the smallest, least intrusive zone. One zone of the year for how the performers did. Um, the water show was fucking awesome. And I have video of that. Now I hope I'm lazy. I don't have everything pulled down from my pictures and video from it. Neither does ginger. I'm gonna try to get them all to you. So hopefully y'all can see some of the shit I'm talking about on our Instagram. I could just give you access to the fucking Instagram account. And you could post your own shit too. We could both do it. Yeah. Like but, team. Yeah. But see, I make mistakes sometimes and there's, <sighs> yeah, I was like, I don't need people seeing more Josh than they thought they wanted to. Ooh, I have to ask though. Uh, I'm almost scared to ask. Was there a Halloween Michael Myers, anything there? No, they just did. Okay. Uh, last year they did Halloween. Shit. Four or five. I remember you telling me that. I just thought you were telling me about this year. No, I was no, mistaken. No, no, okay. no, that was that was from another year. They they've they've went to that well a few times, and that's the thing is nobody knows what's going to happen next year because they've pulled from so many IPs, and 
there's a lot of people clamoring for. Let's go with old original theme stuff. Because there used to be like, there would be an icon, an original character that was kind of the ringleader of the show and all this shit. And that's kind of gone away. But uh, it was a really fun time. I hate that I was sick. I uh, got to do the Orlando Starflyer. It's over 400 foot tall fucking swing thing. Tallest oh, okay, one okay. on earth. Okay. Going there with a massive fucking sinus infection. <laughs> very scary. But um, anyways, um, that's my thing on that. Hopefully you can go sooner rather than later because I think you'd get a kick out of it. I'd love for us to be able to go with a field recorder Ooh, and yeah. actually like after each house stop for a second and immediately give each other's thoughts and, and go through them. I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that, but that I think that'd be a fucking trip. Maybe if we start planning now for next year, I can swing it. I know, right? Well, I guess we should probably get into the actual episode. Oh, yeah. What the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> episode 30, we're here to talk about Jeremy Sonier. Yeah. And this is going to be a little bit different because I would definitely put him in that horror category, but the movies are not necessarily horror. Oh, yeah. This is full-blown thriller exploitation this, this is fine oh yeah they're they're great this is this is the most we've gone in this direction for an entire episode and i have no problems with it whatsoever. <laughs> he does not have as crazy of a backstory as like craven or some of the others that we've done but he grew up in the dc area he was born in 76 i think so he's actually a little bit older than us i wouldn't have guessed that from watching the interview videos yeah no shit He's aged better than we have. What the fuck, man? I'm a little jealous. <laughs> you mean the pot didn't make me younger? <laughs> no, not at all. And apparently booze doesn't help either. <laughs> but he got into film at a very early age, and he was fortunate enough in the sixth grade to meet a group of like-minded friends. Like during the, uh, it's probably the dawn of fucking VHS cameras being like actually affordable for a family, right? Yeah. And they eventually became a group called the Lab of Madness, but they were an ensemble crew that after class and on the weekends and shit would shoot movies and like special effects. They they always like if you see interviews with any of them, they had their movie Mega Cop in 1986. And that was like their they called it like a real movie, but you can see it like on the documentaries on YouTube and it, it's home video camera shit, right? Okay. So it's like it's like a it's like CKY, but with with a goal. Right. Well, and it was actually pretty well done because you can see him like uh, I like hearing Chris Sharp, who's in Murder Party. He's the the meter cop, right? Like he's he's the cardboard knight. Uh, <laughs> when you hear him in the interviews, he's he's pretty professional about it. But like he was saying, you know, they had like really poor paint based blood in like Ziploc bags, and they'd get shot, and they just slap themselves. And and if you've never seen this, I'll send you the link. <laughs> You're going to have to. It's fantastic work. And they had like toy guns and they, they had all these different movies they made. And you can see like Macon Blair as a kid in there and like most of the murder party cast. Right. But they're like okay. kids. And they said that like sometimes Jeremy was just always like a step above. Like he came in and he's like, why don't we strap lady fingers under our shirts and in between the take light it. And then it's pop, 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 pop. And you can see the gunshots going off. So then they're like, oh, that's, that's a step ahead. And they started doing that. Okay. And shit like that. And, um. They just made these movies all the way through high school and, and did various film projects. And they'd show them the kids. They say some kids when school would go to parties and they just fucking make movie scenes. Right. And then they all went to film school for the most part or acting school. Like they all went their separate ways, but still within film. Okay. They decided to get back together and make some movies. And it was Chris Sharp, Macon Blair and Jeremy. And they started working on a short movie called Mustache, but they couldn't get anything started. They could just get a script. They couldn't get anybody to buy it. Nobody would invest in them because nobody knew who they were. And then they made a short movie called Crab Walk, which they were kind of proud of. Couldn't get funding to get it off. 
but they learned a lot about making movies professionally and they actually started making contacts. And then they were like, you know what? We can't get it through the studio. We can't get it through the system. Fuck it. Let's go punk rock. Let's do it indie. Let's make murder parties. And they brought in all their old friends and their friends. They, they made this group called Lab of Madness to make the movie. And it actually says Lab of Madness in the opening credits. Yeah. And it was that sixth grade group. But it was actually, if I remember correctly, it was two film groups. Like somehow there was two of these groups and they met like ninth, tenth grade era and joined. Right. Okay. So all of them came to, back together and they're like, let's do an indie movie. We're going to use our own money and we're going to do everything ourselves. Even. One of the actors in the movie, I can't think of his name right now, but he's the photographer guy and he's in the vampire costume. He has to take it off. Yeah. He was a special effects guy. Oh. So fuck it. He just did the special effects. There you go. Like they all worked on it like that and, and made their movie. And I mean, it's an entertaining film. It did okay in like the indie film circuit, but it was nothing big. And it ended up going on Netflix a few years later, right before Halloween. And that kind of helped him at that point. But during that like hiatus, they had to go back to day jobs. He went to like commercial cinematography and video editing for like companies. Like he'd make their videos. Oh, okay. And that's like just what he had to do in, in the meantime. But he, he decided that he wanted to get into Hollywood filmmaking again and making films and being a director. And he was about to have his third child. And he was like, daddy can't put all the money on the line again. Yeah. So him and his wife cashed out their retirements, maxed out the Amex cards, making Blair did the same thing. Any family members that could, they got all the money. Then they went to Kickstarter for $37,000, I think, which was less than 10% of the budget. That was just to make payroll because they couldn't barter and defer that. Yeah. And, and made Blue Ruin. And that was like his success story. Yeah, right. That, that was like the Kevin Smith style of fuck it. This is what I want right. to do. <laughs> Let's max out the credit cards. I'm just thinking like I just had a third child and thinking, you know, months before the third child's there. Let's max out everything because the last time we can do this. Like, You'd it's be just divorced. terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it, it worked out in his case. But in several interviews, you'll hear him say it was the perfect storm to get Blue Ruin yeah. found. And, and I'll get to that when I get to the film. But what you end up with is a I want to say younger film director because i feel like we're young right yeah but totally. uh i mean he makes very visceral movies jesse's favorite word <laughs> <laughs> with great cinematography which he was a professional cinematographer yeah uh, he actually before he made blue ruin when he stopped doing the commercial video stuff decided to get into filmmaking again but as a cinematographer so he could watch the other directors yeah and, and stuff like that but that's where you get that um Macon Blair is always associated some way, rather acting or writing, and Macon's brothers do the scores to all the movies. So, like his movies are, he's pretty much an auteur in that capacity, right? Yeah. Well, I got a question for you. Did uh, when everybody went off to film school, did him and Macon Blair go like together, or did everybody literally part ways and then come back together? I think everybody literally did their own thing. Okay. It's just Macon Blair and Jeremy Saunier are, and have always been best friends. Okay. And so they were always talking and in touch and uh, very confident in each other's skill set. Gotcha. To, to play off each other. And I'll kind of get in that as we go. And I, I wish I didn't have this brief of a backstory, but I mean, he just, he came, he saw, he did his thing, right? Like it, it it's not always like this crazy story, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we only got four full-blown movies to speak of at this point. So, But the first movie, like I said, 2007, it was Murder Party. And there's really not a lot of famous people in this movie. It is their group of friends yeah. who you'll see pop up in other movies. 
I mean, Macon Blair is the most famous person in the fucking movie. Jeremy says that the movie is The Breakfast Club, but with chainsaws and hard drugs. Just like it should have been. <laughs> it, it really does feel that way, though. It is just like this ensemble cast gets together to do something for a few hours and shit happens, right? Yeah. And like I said earlier, it was two group of friends from high school that worked on movies together and did a little collaboration there at the end. And they had made a childhood promise to make a movie together. So they're like, fuck it, let's do it. And that's how this indie fucking Marvel was made. <laughs> All of his movies are Netflix currently, by the way. So if you guys have never seen any of them, you got to check them out. But Jeremy and Macon and Chris, who are, well, Jeremy's not in the movie. He hates cameras, like being in front of them anyways. But, yeah. but like they, they used all their contacts they made from like mustache and crab walk and stuff to, to work with their friends. And they had extra people in. So like they had friends from high school showing up to work on this movie. And like, who are these people? Like, don't worry. They're going to help <laughs> us get this done. And they're like, let's make a fucking movie. And, and Paul, that's the Paul Goldblatt. His character's name is Paul. They all use their real names in the movie. So okay. Paul was like the special effects guy, right? <laughs> so like he did all the makeup and shit like that. So I'm sure they all wore multiple hats. But you start the movie off with the opening credits and it's Halloween stuff just happening around town. You see like cupcakes and windows and decorations and this and that. And a cop, which you find out later is Chris, given a parking ticket. That was actually shot by Jeremy by hand himself before they even wrote the script for the movie. Okay. Like they had an idea and it was Halloween time. So he just went around town. Oh, catching it in the moment. And just filmed everything and edited it together. It's, it worked. It's, it's a good opening scene. <laughs> but after like the little montage ends, you see Chris, the parking meter cop, walking home. And there's some sort of invitation being blown down the street by the wind. They actually just used a leaf blower, right? <laughs> just blow it down. This is the indie movie at its best, right? But the invitation blows to Chris, steps on it, and he picks it up. It looks great. It's like completely like gothic, Victorian looking, pretty fancy looking invitation. It's not suspicious at all. You know, it just says, come to this murder party alone. No. Uh-uh. Nope. I've seen House on Haunted Hill. This is uh, how people lose their kidneys in ice baths. <laughs> but Chris takes his invitation, and he arrives at his home, where his pumpkin smash on the front porch, which you kind of saw happen in the opening credits. And he lives alone with his cat, Sir Lancelot. <laughs> And he prepares to watch some fucking F-rated horror films. The names are so terrible on VHS and eat his candy corn bowl, which I think is supposed to be for the kids, but he doesn't give a fuck. They smash his pumpkin, right? It was at this point in the movie that I'm like, I don't know whether I want this guy to die or I'm fixing to watch this guy kill other people because I knew nothing about this fucking movie. You just said, dude, watch Murder Party on Netflix. Not even This was before the podcast. Right, right. Well, during, I don't fucking remember. No, because it was last year. It might have been during the planning phases. Yeah, and... It's a fucking weird setup. That's all I'm trying to say here is it's like, I don't know if this there's something wrong with this guy. Like, anyways. This is one of those movies that, that David is like, you've never seen Murder Party? And he like pulls it up on Netflix. And I saw the poster was a guy in cardboard armor. And I'm like, let's do this. <laughs> I'm so mad I didn't think to do that for Halloween. Oh, shit. Yeah, dude, the cardboard armor. I might do that next year. I was going to say, we're, you're going to have to let me know ahead of time. So that, <laughs> well, no, we already have a plan for this year. You're safe. <laughs> okay. But uh, he, he wants to watch his shitty movies, but his cat will not get out of his chair. He's like, Sir Lancelot, get up. This isn't fair. And since the cat won't get up, fuck picking up and moving the cat. That means I got to go to the murder party. It's like fucking Napoleon Dynamite. It really is. <laughs> he grabs a smashed pumpkin. And he decides to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, right? He takes the pumpkin and makes, uh, was it pumpkin bread? Like, he immediately takes the smashed pumpkin, he yeah. makes something, puts it in the oven, takes a bunch of Amazon boxes or something, <laughs> and he makes this badass night costume out of cardboard and duct tape, 
make a lot of cosplayers proud, okay? A normal dude couldn't wing this. You can tell this is like a special effects person made it. And uh, he takes a terrifying subway ride after he utilizes MapQuest. Do you remember MapQuest? <laughs> yes. Like he gets on his old ass computer and he MapQuest directions to the party and he gets on the subway. And there's this dude like rapping six inches from his face. I don't even remember what he's saying, but this guy is like the most nerdy, stereotypical white guy ever, Chris. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's just like, oh God, don't mug me. Like the look on his face. <laughs> But Chris reaches his stop and he gets out of the subway stop and he's just, it's like a montage and walking through town. And you can tell that town's getting shadier and shadier and he's in an industrial district and he's fucking terrified. And I think he hears like, I don't know if it's police sirens or dogs or something, but he starts hauling ass at like fucking warp speed and he ends up finding the warehouse where the party is. Yeah. He opens the door and you see a bunch of people in costumes. Everyone looks fucking shocked that someone actually showed up. Off their single invitation <laughs> that they gave out. They put one out. Do we, it, I didn't rewatch this, but do we find out later that there really was only the one? Yes. <laughs> okay. And the use of the word dildo <laughs> in this film, I must say, is fantastic. It should be like a new, like, French literary phase or something. <laughs> like, like, oh, some dildo showed up. They say dildo so many times in this fucking movie. But as Chris looks around, he sees Pris from Blade Runner. He sees the baseball dude from Warriors. He sees a fucking gothic vampire. What, what else in the room? A wolf man? Yeah. But what he also sees is plastic all over the floor with axes and chainsaws. And he seems to think something's up. They're just doing a Dexter shoot. Paul walks up to him, talking to him. That's the, the vampire, if you haven't seen the movie yet. And he's like very theatrically talking to him and doing this thing with the invitation and catching it on fire. And it's like a sleight of hand and it's distracting Chris. And it works as Macon Blair clumsily sneaks up behind him with an axe just to fucking axe him in the back of the head. And the axe immediately gets caught on the light string. <laughs> yes. and he fucking turns the light on and off as he gets stuck. And Chris figures out what's going on and he tries to run and they wrestle him and subdue him. Welcome to your murder. But Chris wakes up tied to a chair and everyone's arguing over going to some guy named Cicero's party or sticking with their murder party plan, right? So we're like, what the fuck's going on? They also start to critique his costume and Sky says she might think he's retarded. <laughs> I do want to say that's Sky Sonia. That's Jeremy's wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Like okay. The whole, everybody's all in on this, right? But they ask Bill, who's like the Warriors baseball guy, and he's playing, I don't know if it's fucking PSP or what. But he's got some console the whole time. Yeah. He's sitting on the floor playing. They're like, what do you think? I didn't sign on for a second degree assault party. Sky says she has an idea where they can get street cred without having to kill everyone. And then realizes there are raisins in the pumpkin bread that Chris brought. Oh, yeah, that, that's what he, cooked, he brought right? it with him, yeah. And she's like, are these organic raisins? <laughs> and uh, she's allergic to raisins. And they're like, are you okay? And she's like, oh, I'll be fine. And then she gets dizzy, falls over, and gets a spike through her fucking head. And we already have our first death in the movie, like 15 minutes in, and it's an accident. Yep, it is a bumbling, and that's the thing, it's a bumbling movie in the greatest way. <laughs> that's going to come back into play when we get to Blue Ruin, though, like the typecasting. Eh? Or the pigeonholing, rather. Eh. But Macon loses his shit over Sky dying, and he decides he just wants to kill Chris with acid that Sky brought because Sky brought acid. Oh, yeah. So he grabs this bottle of acid and he fucking he, Macon Blair like losing his shit in the scene is fucking fantastic. He's like, <laughs> and he's like screaming and yelling, and he pours it all over Chris, and Chris is screaming like he's gonna die, and nothing's happening. And they look at it, and it's uh, acetic acid, which is 
vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> so now the room just smells like shit, right? And nobody's <laughs> dying. Alexander shows up, who's really douchey. This is our douchebag O'Neill of the film. And he's played by their friend, Sandy Barnett. Everybody's a, a family member or friend in this movie. And uh, he's texting or something. Like, they know he's outside of the warehouse. He's not inside yet. Yeah. So they want to cover up the the crime scene because they've already fucked up and lost one of their friends, right? And um, they don't want to look like a bunch of dildos, right? <laughs> so they stuff her, what is it, like a cooler or freezer or something? They, yeah. They use the plastic that's for Chris to wrap her up yep. and shove her in the freezer. And Alexander comes in. And he's not happy that Paul is also a vampire because he's dressed as a vampire. And he tells Paul to take off his vampire fangs and his vampire coat and his vampire shirt. Then he tells him to take off his vampire <laughs> pants. And they're all obviously scared Alexander and they'll do anything he says. And Alexander also likes to look at Paul without any fucking pants on. Because <laughs> he's got like this little silver fucking G-string thing yeah. on. And he's like, mmm. Then you start hearing everyone pitch ideas on ways to artistically kill Chris. And you can tell that they're all like into different kinds of arts, whether it's video or photography. And, and we find out that Alexander has a $300,000 grant that he can hook someone up with. And he gives a speech on commercialism of the world and how it's taking over and pushing art out and how they're gonna change things. When our masterpiece is complete and the coroner's report is back in, it will read the cause of death, art. But their final plan, according to Alexander, is to wait until the witching hour because it would be artistic and all take turns stabbing Chris to death. They're all douchebag O'Neills, I just figured it out. <laughs> but since they have to wait until the witching hour, they decide that they should get pizza and cake because you can't have a party without cake. Damn right. And then it'll really be a party. Um, meanwhile, Chris gets loose and he's running around in the warehouse and they have to chase him down and catch him again. But it's, it's great because they don't just catch him. He runs into a doorway thinking he got away and it's a closet. Yeah. He's just looking around. And there's like hoses and like HVAC duct tape and all this random shit. <laughs> and the camera cuts, because the cinematography is fucking awesome in all these movies. Yeah. Camera cuts outside of the group and the door busts open and he just throws all the shit at him. And he hops in place looking and tries to take off running. It's fucking very well done. He doesn't make it. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> they catch him again and we get like a, a time lapse of them each prepping their art and or playing video games and doing lots of drugs. Like Pris is doing cocaine the like, whole time, the whole time. And, uh, Pris's character, I think her name's Lexi, right? In the movie. And somewhere during this montage, I, I think it's when Megan Blair comes back with the pizza and the cake. You can just see a window behind him and Alexander's behind her, just laying into her, right? Yep. Like they're banging. And he's like, where's Lexi at? Cause he has a crush on her as you see throughout the movie. And, uh, <laughs> And there's this scene where Alexander comes out. I'm, I can't remember if he has Coke on his face or not, right? I think he does. And he's looking at Macon, and, and he basically lets Macon know that he just fucked his crush. Lexi's pussy screamed at me. It what? They decide to play a, a game of extreme truth or dare with this truth serum because that's what all the kids in Belarus are doing, right? <laughs> and I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, I can't think of the character's name right now, but Alexander came in with like an Eastern European guy that's supposed to be like, yeah. his family owns the sandwich shop on the corner, but it's also his drug dealer, yeah. right? And he's just like, like a tracksuit and he has a gun. He's like, don't worry, it's a prop gun. It's part of his costume. What is his costume? Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that guy, I think he's actually, other than Macon Blair, like the most accomplished actor out of all of them. And I couldn't okay. tell anything he was in. I just remember looking at his IMDb and I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Okay. But they all shoot up the truth serum and they start having a, a pun party. Saying puns out and then they dose Chris because he's tied up in the chair and why the fuck not, right? Yep. Now that they're on the serum and they're taking turns talking, we find out some interesting things like Paul's bisexual. Macon's a creep that likes to collect popsicle sticks of Lexi. <laughs> Chris shit his pants one time and he's a cop. I don't remember if he shit his pants then or previously, but he definitely shit his pants. Well, he says I'm a civilian ticket giver. <laughs> so it's a very technical term there. Yeah. It's like a fancy way of saying meter made. Maybe. I don't know. I think so. But their solution to make this party more fun is for everyone to do more blow. Right. And, uh, the party has another montage and you see the same window where Lexi was getting banged, but it's Paul with Alexander banging on this. Yeah. And it's, it's like, everything is just so like slapstick kind of funny. And like in the background, it it really does fit. And I feel like I've blitzed through almost an hour of film at this point. Nearly. But I mean, it's just, it really goes that way. It's just like a fun party with like one liners the whole time. And, um, I guess I forgot to say, but Alexander had brought a dog named, was it Hellhammer? Something like that. And Lexi's allergic to the dogs. So they had to yeah. tie the dog up outside, right? That's right. That's right. And I think the dog's barking and um, they send Bill to go check on him. And Bill is video game playing. Warriors come out to play baseball guy, right? <laughs> and he's talking to the dog. He's like, I like to kill the fuzzy ones. <laughs> right? Bill's fucked up in this movie. Yes. And um, after he's done threatening this dog, he walks in. And he had been painting earlier. He actually did take a break from playing video games to paint. And they're all making fun of his painting <laughs> and like belittling him. And they don't realize he's right there. And uh, he's not happy about it. Should we get on with the murder? Alexander decides to send his uh, sandwich guy slash drug dealer, Zyko, I think's his name, out to get him a big bag of crank. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you do not want crank. And he's like, no, I want some crank. A big bag of it. <laughs> and um, while he's gone, he's like, I will... Recite the Raven as we approach the witching hour because this guy's such a douche. And um, there, I'm sorry, there are so many parallels because this is obviously a dark comedy, right? But there are so many parallels between this and what we do in the shadows that I've never <laughs> realized until now. you get what I'm saying. It's because it's a group of friends <laughs> making a movie together with a fucking handheld camera. That's what happens. Yeah. It's fucking great though. Like I remember the first time I watched it, I looked at David and I was like, I don't know how I feel about this movie. Like I was like, it, it definitely had its moments. And then I just watch it over and over again. And it, it's a fucking gem. But uh, I don't know. There's just the way this movie goes. I feel like I'm glossing over so much of it, but there's jokes earlier in the movie about who uses their cell phone in a murder scene. Right. Yeah. And Lexi and Paul are making fun of each other. But at some point, Paul did call somebody and talk about amateurs and lighting or something. Right. So somebody else shows up at the warehouse and it's Paul's assistant and she's there to help with the photography. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Alexander and Lexi are arguing over like Paul, like bringing an outsider in or they're going to have to kill her and making decides he's going to go out for a smoke. Well, throughout this entire movie, he's been like just down in booze, like a madman, which is apparently was milk water. That he was like chugging because he was pouring it all over himself. You see in the movies. Yeah. And they're talking about like how he wouldn't like change the clothes or wash them. So he smelled like shit the whole time. Because Macon was supposed to be this grungy, nasty looking guy. So he fucking did it. But he was actually drinking milk water. It was supposed to be like booze the whole time. He's pouring it all over him when he's chugging it. Especially when he's drugged up. And uh, he, he goes out for the smoke and he goes to light his cigarette. 
and he accidentally catches himself on fire. <laughs> and only Chris notices like the flame <laughs> shoot up from outside the window. Yeah. And and Paul's starting to like gout Alexander in a, a street cred. He's like, I want to see that fucking sketchbook you're carrying on. Meanwhile, Macon Blair is burning outside. Yeah. Right? And uh, I think the dog's barking and Alexander's like, Lexi, go bring Hillhammer in. Right. So she goes out to get the dog and you just see her kind of like passively come in while Paul and Alexander are arguing. And she just grabs a fire extinguisher and goes out and you hear it spraying and she puts Macon out after she brings the dog in. They carry Macon in, and uh, Paul sneak injects Alexander with some of the extra truth serum because he didn't take any yeah. during, during the extreme truther day, right? And they find out that he's a poser and a fry cook, right? Like, everything's bullshit. Like, every line he said, every French word, every film term, uh, the Belarus comment, they were all things that he wrote down. And they're like, do you yeah. just write down things to sound smart? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And they find out that his plan was to kill all of them and sell their art that he's been collecting, that they've been giving him to get this grant, right? Yep. Because he says that nobody cares about art until you're dead. <laughs> oh, this guy's an asshole. Somewhere in there, he even found Sky dead in the icebox, and he says to himself, well, that's one less to worry about. Like, yeah. But nobody heard him say it, but it's like very brief. But Zyko comes in because, you know, he sent him out to get the big bag of crank. And uh, Tim, which is Alexander's real name, looks at him. He says, shoot all of them. <laughs> Paul and his assistant uh, go down first. I mean, he's like literally bitching about the lighting as Zyko just pulls the gun out and fucking shoots him in the head. And it's like, it, you made fun of me for saying visceral, but like, it's, it's realistic. Like he keeps talking for a second because he doesn't realize he just got shot in the head. And stuff like that and falls over. Well, yeah. and that's how it goes down, supposedly. And to be serious for a minute, this this is the first inkling of of uh, Sonier's friggin' shtick. That's what he likes is that abrupt moment of reality. Right. And that's how he likes to put his violence in there. And after watching the rest of the movies and then going back and thinking about right. this, like it's a slap in the face when it happens, not a... Not a, oh my God, that's cool. And he even says that in interviews. Like, right. I don't want you to be cheering about my my gore. I want you to be like, oh shit. Well, this movie's interesting when you compare it to his other work though, because it's an ensemble made movie and there was multiple directors in the group and they just decided he was the most professional and they let him direct this one. He could have done, he could have just been the cinematographer. True. It just kind of went down that way. So while he did write and direct it and stuff like that, it, it was like a broken lizard ensemble movie. Yeah. It was just Lab of Madness and not Broken Lizard. But you can see the inklings of him and Macon's work. And yep. I, I should have said this at the beginning. We're not going to be able to talk about Jeremy and not talk about Macon <laughs> the entire fucking time. It won't go away. <laughs> but after Zyko has shot Paul and his assistant down, Lexi attacks Zyko and Macon wakes up and his face is fucking burned to shit. And he still has his rubber werewolf or his latex werewolf mask on. Yes. And he's trying to peel it off. And it's the latex and the flesh. The makeup here is fucking fantastic. And Paul did all that. <laughs> and I, I, it's really graphic, isn't it? And <laughs> it it's, is. it's amazing looking. And uh, it makes me never want to accidentally have latex melted onto my skin and bond with it. Cause it looks very painful. You can be Freddy Krueger forever. But as he peels all the shit off his face and he screams in pain, he picks up a chainsaw, which you have to plug into a wall, and that's going to come into play later, and he kills Zyko with a chainsaw. Meanwhile, 
Lexi undoes the chains on Chris. She's actually letting him go at this point, yeah. which was kind of shocking the way her character was portrayed. But I mean, I, shit really hit the fan, right? Yeah. Well, there's that realization of what's really going on at this point. Right, right. Once she saw Paul with the blood <laughs> going out of his head. Um, but during all this, Bill is still playing his video game on the floor, and his game keeps repeating, everybody dies, right? And uh, Hellhammer starts to eat all of the crank in the background. I forgot about that. I can't make this up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Bill goes ape shit, and he kills Lexi with an axe. But then we see Tim, Alexander, whatever the fuck you want to call him, getting bored, <laughs> and he goes into the other room only to be attacked by a cooked-out Hellhammer, and uh, he then gets finished off by Bill. And <laughs> there's a couple funny stories here. Jeremy was very specific on how he wanted Alexander's bottom half of his jaw removed from his face. Okay. He wanted him crawling out without the bottom half of his jaw and just bleeding everywhere, and Paul went and did the makeup. And they go to film the scene, and he comes crawling out with his lips missing and the jaw still there and he's like what the fuck <laughs> like it's really funny like, he was apparently like pissed that they just did the makeup for the lips but realistically with the zero budget they're working on i don't know how they're gonna do the jaw is is this why in later films you're you'll notice that when people get shot in the face which happens a lot in his films it's <laughs> all very it kind of feels the same each time that still is impactful every time but has he got like this underlying thing about about faces and then the way they need to be removed. I did notice in several interviews he explains that his career as a cinematographer, that he can envision every scene as he writes it. Special effects, the angle okay. and everything as he goes. And you've noticed he's kind of camera shy too when he gets interviewed. Yeah. And he's just like very specific and I want it like this. And then he just tells everybody. But a lot of these movies, he was the cinematographer, the cameraman, and the director. Yeah. And he can only do so much while being pulled in so many directions. And, like, you know, so he counts on everyone else to do their job without him double-checking on them like a director normally would. <laughs> and when you're using friends, we all know how oh, that yeah, goes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not only did that happen, Bill, the, I think his, his real name's William. They might call him Bill in real life, but his name's Bill in the movie, the, the baseball bat guy. Yeah. They say he's, like, really quiet. And he's quiet the whole movie. Yeah. So they said he's quiet the whole time on set. And they told him, you know, to do the bashing scene. And they didn't give him a script. And Jeremy said everything that he said was so fucking vulgar that they just had to, like, cut it out and just re-record audio. Oh, wow. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't put that on film. And he's like, <laughs> something broken, Bill. So that guy might be fucked up in real life. He really might kill the fuzzy ones. He's the scary one in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I, he's like the... If you have not seen this fucking, the making of the movie, you got to watch it. He's just like, he wears a shirt that says, I eat pussy and I love it or something. He's like, yeah, so we had a good craft table on set. (laughs) (laughs) Shit like that. And uh, yeah, apparently he goes psycho. Nice. But while everybody's breaking bad, Chris seizes the opportunity to get away. Party's over. Bill goes chasing after Chris. It looks straight up like a modern remake of Warriors. And uh, Macon's following after Bill to get revenge on him for killing Lexi with his chainsaw and his extension cord. And he's carrying this long-ass extension cord. And uh, this is one of the most comical chase scenes I've seen in the history of cinema. They're going through the whole town. Chris has to stop and take a piss break at some point (laughs) because he's been taped up for so long. There's random costume parties they run through. Chris tries to like lay down next to like the lip of a curb a couple of times. And it's, I don't remember his alarm goes off or something to take his medicine. Right. And yeah. Fucking Bill hears it. It's just, all of it is hilarious. 
meanwhile, Macon is constantly trailing behind him with an extension cord to chainsaw, <laughs> trying to keep it plugged in. It's fucking fantastic. <laughs> the chase ends at the club where Cicero, that we heard about earlier, is having his Halloween party, and it's an art show in a warehouse that's also a Halloween party. And Bill stops to talk with Cicero, and Cicero's blowing smoke up his ass about how the teacher likes him and how his art project's great and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and you know Alexander, right? I hear he's going to be here to talk to us about the grant money. <laughs> and that's when, like, you see something snap in Bill's face again. Like, oh, this guy doesn't like me. He's just talking to me because I know Alexander. Yeah. And uh, Bill gets over the art scene and goes ape shit with an axe and kills everyone in all the fucking art rooms. Fuck this whole scene. Everybody dies. But as Bill's rampaging through the rooms and fucking Chris is trying to hide, it's in a room with women with body paint and he's like checking them out. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I got to hide. You know, Bill bust in, but on the roof, Macon finds a place to plug in the chainsaw finally and accidentally falls off the roof. And he yells Lexi as he's falling to die. And the chainsaw is hanging because it's electrical, right? Yep. And as Bill comes in with the axe, Chris reaches through the window because he just heard all this happen, grabs the chainsaw, sword fights Bill briefly before fucking slamming the chainsaw into his head. And this was done with practical effects. Like they did all the makeup. It looked fucking beautiful. They yeah. took a real chainsaw to a machine shop and had the shape cut out of his head to put it there. Okay. But Jeremy knows a guy that does digital effects, and he had him add a moving blade. That was the touch there. Okay. All practical effects, but he just made it look like there was a blade. The blade was vibrating digitally. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's one of the best chainsaw fucking hits to a face I've ever seen in film. <laughs> and this movie was made for peanuts, right? But as Chris slays Bill, he grabs the jack lantern in the room, and I think he puts it on his head, and he starts surveying the carnage in the room. I just wanted to party! He then steps out, takes Cicero's phone from him, Calls 911, and as the operator answers, he just hands the phone to Cicero and starts walking off. And the guests start looking at all the fucking massacred bodies in the room, and they all think it's part of the art show. Chris goes home, gets some milk and candy corn, and sits down to watch his shitty fucking movies. Chris and Sir Lancelot are the only survivors of the murder party. The end. That's the fucking movie. I feel like I just rushed through it. Well, there's not a lot to it. You know, it's one of those people in a room. I mean, we're going to get into another movie like that later where <laughs> shit expands. But uh, those people in a room with money. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Was any of this like a backhand at the arts? Obviously. In general, or, or at least the attitude of some people it in had the arts? Been, I mean, this movie was obviously like a, you could tell watching as a group of friends with no budget made a movie. Yeah. But it's also the most well done group of friends that a budget made a movie I've ever seen. Oh yeah. And I'm not saying like the riveting plot twist. In this no, and no, that. no, there's not that, but the, the cinematography, the film quality, the special effects yeah. were fantastic. The, the production acting, yeah. is, is, is great. It was fucking great, but I'm assuming they all knew art people <laughs> in the art scene being all film nerds, basically. And it, it had to have been a stab at it because it's brought up too many times throughout the movie. Like you yeah. have the poser in Alexander. You have the everybody's trying to be fake to get this grant money just to make it as an artist. And then you have the the fuck this scene, everyone dies. You know what I mean? Like Well, and then even followed up with the the uppity party goers at the quote unquote part arty show that are like, Oh, this is amazing. Like Right, right. They all had to know somebody. I mean, when we get to Green Room later, like Everybody's based off of somebody he knew. Yeah. Right. So I'm assuming that they probably, could have been callbacks to other friends. Right. Right. 
No, it's like I said when when you first told me to watch it, and I saw the 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 cover on Netflix, and I'm looking at the wife I'm like, oh, and then you know five minutes into the movie, you're like, where's this going? Where's this right? Going? It it takes a minute, but right. once it gets there, it's like, okay, I got to watch the rest of it now. I was the same way when I saw it the first time because I mean the movie's like what an hour fifteen, yeah, maybe, and it, I just remember. I think we watched that in summer of 84, whatever, the same night David and I did. And okay. have you seen that one? I haven't. Tell me about it. I don't think I have. I mean, it's in the 80s, and it's a group of kids that play on their walkie-talkies at night, and there's a serial killer murdering children in the neighborhood, and they decide to solve it themselves. Nah, I haven't seen that. It's, it's a pretty fucking good movie, but it was like a good, serious movie, and we watched that one first while we were drinking. And then he's like, I've, we've been drinking too much to watch another serious movie. Have you seen <laughs> okay. fucking murder party? Cause this is not serious. And we put it on and I literally kept looking at him saying, what the fuck do you have me watching? But when it was <laughs> over and done with, I had a good fucking time. And every time that I've watched it, I've had an even better time. Okay. And I think it's cause I was expecting like a full production movie when I went in, but really it feels like a full production movie. Yeah, it did. When I watched it, I didn't know that it was that low budget when I watched it. Yeah, I mean, it's all family and friends and shit in the movie. And uh, it, it was filmed in a warehouse, right? Like, how much do they really have to pay for that? And honestly, the only two people that I know of that made it anywhere from that was Jeremy and Macon. Yeah. And that was due to their friendship. I mean, Jeremy directed the movie. Like I said, it, it to my knowledge, it did well on, like, the independent film circuit, but not, like, famous. And nobody, like, bought it to mass produce it, but it kind of sat there for years. And they had to get day jobs right like normal yeah. day jobs and netflix just randomly picked it up before halloween one year and it got you know really high watched on netflix and it popped up in the algorithm or whatever and just more people started watching it and it kind of gave his name some recognition to set him up to make his next feature film but it wasn't until six years later that he made his next film blue ruin in 2013 and like i said they didn't they didn't get critical acclaim for murder party Nobody got rich off a murder party. Yeah. They had to go get corporate jobs making videos and commercials and shit like that. Stuck in America. Sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my life. Um, but Jeremy wasn't happy just being a cinematographer and whatnot for like the commercial industry. Right. And he decided he wanted to get into film. And he became a cinematographer for actual movies. And that way he could watch the directors and see what went wrong and what to learn. And what he started noticing was the directors were getting fucked constantly. It's like they'd have this idea for a movie and you could tell as a talented director. And the studio would say, you only have this many days. I don't give a fuck about your artistic value. Yeah. And this and that. And he was like, well, I don't know if I want to get stuck in all that. And he really wanted to be a director. And he had his third child coming. And making at his first coming. And he was like, I gotta be responsible. I can't like just keep putting every cent I have into making a movie after I have three children. It's okay with two children and a third one on the way. <laughs> so, like I said earlier, him and his wife and Macon and, and their wife, they maxed out their credit cards, they took second mortgages on their house, they deferred payments on things and went to Kickstarter for less than ten percent of the budget just for payroll, because you actually have to have cash on hand for that to green light the movie. And, um, he just knew he had to do it himself. It had to be an indie film to, to get his vision across. Yeah. And he was pigeonholed him and Macon were having a hard time getting work. Cause everybody wanted, he could have got jobs making murder party type movies. Yeah. He didn't want to make like indie 
fucking just like goofy gore movies. He wanted to make real movies and he had to get himself out of that pigeonhole. And Macon, his best friend since childhood, had had bit parts in different shows, but he really felt like Macon was a good actor. And he felt like if he could just get him a good starring role, he could help catapult Macon's career. And he felt like he had a good cinematographer, director, writer, and actor on their hands, but nobody else saw them that way. They saw them as a liability. Studios <laughs> didn't want to get the money because they didn't have anything. It's like, oh, it's the murder party guys, right? Yeah. What else you got? So the most important thing to him after he got the money together and started doing things was to get a camera. He's like, I need to get my hands on a camera first. And there's a certain Canon model that he just like fucking, he's like, this is the way to go. You can get a film granny look. It's beautiful. I liked it in my hands because he was going to do the cinematography and film this shit and stuff mostly for monetary reasons, but I'm sure it was to get his vision across. And apparently indie movies, they usually give you 18 days to make the movie. Okay. He wanted 30 and he got his 30 because he fucking did it himself. That's what happens when you go all in on it, you know? Yeah. And he says like when they did the European circuit, people will talk about like the way you did this and this was that style. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah. Cause he had to fucking bullshit his way through it. <laughs> but the only thing that he said, anybody ever pointed out that was intentional was the movie uses blue filters yeah. at the beginning but Dwight eventually regresses. <laughs> and when that happens, they start using neutral colors. Yeah. So like some of that was done intentionally, but a lot of that, he just wanted to fucking own the camera and make the movie that he wanted to make. He wanted the movie to really showcase what a normal person going on a crime spree would look like. And he actually pitched it to producers and studios to get money is no country for old men, but with an idiot. <laughs> and, I couldn't find anything 100% definitive, but it appears that the movie was a little bit more comical and slapsticky in the beginning. Uh, okay. And it kind of like evolved into this. No, this shit feels, the way shit goes down in this just feels real. It does. I mean, it's a very realistic movie. I could, we have several friends and actually I'll throw me into the category. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like imagine if I was in a scenario where Dwight is. And I decided to go do what he does, which we're going to get into in a second, guys. <laughs> and uh, just think about, like, my experience with firearms and crime. You'd be coming to me and be like, I need a gun. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I don't, it just I, it's a very visceral and realistic movie. Make fun of me all you want. Are you telling me you couldn't hit him from two yards? <laughs> For the record, Jesse has fired a breakdown 410 shotgun when he was nine when his grandpa and uncle took him rabbit hunting one time at a Pepsi can. That is my gun experience. All the rabbits survived. I might even be more qualified than Dwight at that point. But we open up to our main character, Dwight, played by a very disheveled Macon Blair, stealing a bath from a stranger's house as I think the real estate agent's coming in and show off the house. And we find out that he's living out of a car with bullet holes in it in like the desert. And he likes to grab recyclables off the beach and steal carny food out of dumpsters to eat. You know, he's living the American dream. Absolutely, man. Jeremy did say when they were trying to get all the money together for the movies, like, Macon, I need you to have, like, this fucking crazy beard. So he started growing that shit 10 months out. Okay. It's pretty disheveled. See this? See this? Nearly seven years. Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been trimmed a couple times. <laughs> I remember I didn't know the term stank stash until I heard somebody <laughs> make fun of your mustache. I rocked the stink stash for a long time. You did. You did. Uh, we were much younger guys. Um, yeah, this is like five, seven years ago. There were some jokes. I think it was on the director's commentary. Like the working titles for the movie was like the Avenging Hobo and stuff like that. <laughs> you can't do that, man. Hobo with a shotgun. Come on. <laughs> well, Jeremy's like, no, it wasn't. So apparently 
Blue Ruin was like a like a placeholder name. Okay. And then it just never came up with a better name. And also the font used in the opening credits for it was just supposed to be a placeholder. And they showed it at Cannes. And they're like, fuck it. Everybody liked it. Oh, wow. Because that was the thing. This movie, he says it was a perfect storm. Jeremy did. He says that like they tried to get it into Cannes because they wanted to go outside of the American market just because they felt like they're shitting on indie movies. Yeah. And they got a letter back and it was in French, right? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know what I mean. So they had to go to somebody who knew this spoke French. And it was like, we're considering your movie. Like, they send you a letter just to let you know they're considering you. Oh, that's a dick move just to get your hopes up. Right. And then they got accepted and they hadn't screened the movie anywhere. The first time <laughs> the movie was ever played for anybody outside of them and their families was the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, wow. But, I mean, there was a line immediately afterwards to sign him for the movie. Yeah. He, he said they wanted direct to DVD, but he ended up getting a theatrical release and like a Netflix deal. And he's like, I couldn't line up any of the shit like better. Like, it's just like he got Saturday night, which was like the, the popular night, but there was like no American movies. So it was like the one American movie. Yeah. And like all this shit happened okay. and there happened to be a famous producer there that was wanting to pick up a movie that night. And he's like, I'm buying a movie before I go home tonight. <laughs> And that was the one American movie. And, and it, I mean, it's a good movie. Like, it's oh, yeah. not like just the miracle happened. <laughs> but, like, the miracle happened. I mean, this fucking poor guy, like, was going to be living in a cardboard box with a baby. Right? He was, he was going to be in the car near the beach <laughs> with the bullet holes in it. Right, right. And that car, like, apparently him and Macon drove that car up to wherever they were filming. Like, with the bullet holes in it and everything. But anyways, after all the dumpster diving and the... Breaking into houses for a bath and collecting recyclables, Dwight decides to end his awesome day by going to sleep in his bullet hole ridden car until he's woken up the next morning by a cop that he seems to have a relationship with. And she tells him he's not in trouble. She just needs him to come to the station. Apparently, they didn't ask her if she knew how to drive a car. And she didn't. And the police car pulls up with her in it. So they actually had to push the car into the shot. Who she, doesn't know how to drive a car? She didn't have a driver's like, oh, Maybe she knew how to drive, didn't have a driver's license. It said she didn't know how to drive a car, but they actually pushed the police car into the shot <laughs> so that she could get out of it. He, you That's know, great. Jeremy envisions his scenes, and he was the cinematographer and I think the cameraman. Yeah. I knew he was the cinematographer, but I think he might have even been the cameraman. Himself. I believe so. And he knew that he wanted the, the cop car to roll into the shot with her in it. She couldn't drive. Let's push the motherfucker, <laughs> right? But she takes him to the station, and we find out that somebody's going to be released from prison. And she wanted him to be with someone when he found out and not be alone. And the person did something awful to someone Dwight knows. And that's, I mean, we're not fed any information. Yeah, right? that's all we know. But we see Dwight cash in some recyclables, buy a map to Virginia, prep his car because he apparently had the battery in the trunk in a bag, I guess, to stop from corrosion and whatnot because he wasn't driving the bitch. He was just sleeping in it and uh, hit the road. He throws a newspaper in the seat of his car and the headline does say, 93 plea deal mandates Virginia double murderer freed. That's all the backstory we got to go on, right? So we know he's on some kind of a mission. They don't say what year the movie is, but I'm assuming it was 2013 when they filmed it. So this person's been in jail for quite some time, right? Yeah. Dwight goes into, I guess it's a pawn shop to buy a gun, but he sees that he's on camera when he's looking at the guns. And he looks at the lady and, and goes to buy a postcard. He's like, you got stamps? Because right? yeah. he doesn't want to look guilty because he sucks at this. Yeah. He actually goes back and forth between sucking and not sucking. I'm going to get into that in a minute. Mm. It might be because he's Kevin from Home Alone. That's that's <laughs> a conspiracy I have that's coming up. Um, I like where you're going. <laughs> but we see him write a letter to someone named Sam. And 
by letter, I mean he writes on the postcard and he drops that off in a mailbox. And then that night he rolls up to a roadhouse and he starts checking the car, see if the doors are locked and he's looking in the windows. And he goes to a big truck and you don't know what he's doing. And he breaks the fucking window out with a brick, dives to the window and steals a gun case out and hauls ass out of the scene, right? Funny story. That was a one take deal. They had fucking almost no money to make this movie, right? Okay. And they had to shatter the window out of a nice truck. And Macon Blair was like really nervous to do the scene. And he kept practicing and, and, and stuff like that. And they go to do the one shot take and he fucking smashes the window out and he's supposed to open the door and steal the gun. And he couldn't get the fucking door open. And he's like, oh my God. And his head's like, I got to save the shot for Jeremy. So then he dove through the fucking window hole, which was real glass. Yeah. And still the case. He realized after Jeremy said cut, he's like, oh fuck. When I was practicing earlier, I hit the lock button. <laughs> so he like locked the door. I mean, like this is friends making a movie yeah. steal, but with a budget. Well, uh. credit cards. <laughs> Truly the Kevin Smith model. <laughs> It's in a different way, though. Yeah. The Kevin Smith model, it, it is the same model, but Kevin Smith's movies require less than this movie did. Oh, no, no. I totally agree with that. I was just making a joke about the credit cards. Yeah, yeah. Because he lied about being the manager of the video store and started applying for a bunch of credit cards and then maxed them out. But the gun case, I say it's a gun case, but it's like a it's like a lock in the trigger, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a trigger lock. And he, he takes it out in like the desert on some rocks. He tries to break it off with a crowbar. But he destroys the gun in the process. Like, it's a six-shooter, right? Yeah. And he, like, picks it up in the fucking the the, chamber, right? The cylinder. The cylinder, yeah. The yeah. cylinder rolls out of the gun because he <laughs> fucked it up. That totally seems like something I would do in a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, if you get eaten, I'm fucked. Like, my family's coming to you, and you're going to help me. But after his failed attempt to uh, acquire a firearm, he drives to a prison, and he watches a I mean, it's a really shitty, like, boss hog limo. Yeah. From, like, Dukes of Hazards pull up and uh, picks up a man that's obviously disturbing Dwight. And I will say, Macon Blair's acting through this movie is fucking phenomenal. Oh, yeah. His pantomiming and just the look on his face, you feel, you don't even know why it is, but right. you feel what he's feeling. I think it's funny that he finally got his movie to, like, showcase himself. Then he ended up being a screenplay writer and director himself and not an actor. <laughs> so now him and Jeremy are like competing for shit, right? But we see him uh, follow the limo with the ex-con and their family members to a, I'm assuming a different roadhouse. Let's just say yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he takes his key out and it's on like a dog chain necklace, right? Or, yeah. Uh, like a dog tag necklace. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and he puts it around his neck and he sneaks in to the bar. Nobody notices this nasty looking man and a hobo Haynes t-shirt with his beard as he sneaks into the men's room and has a knife in his hand as he hides in the stall, right? The ex-con comes into the bathroom talking to someone and Dwight emotionally breaks down. He has this, like the facial features and him covering his mouth. He says it was from the movie Man and Hunter. Like he's like, he just embraced it and did it, right? <laughs> But the when the additional man leaves the room and the con's alone in there and Dwight busts out of the stall and he just straight up stabs the fucking man in the neck and the man starts bleeding and he doesn't give a fuck and he grabs Dwight <laughs> and just starts to choke him and ask him what the fuck he's doing and, and Dwight's struggling and he barely manages to stab the man in the temple taking him down to the ground and the guy keeps talking while twitching and his eyes are blinking and blood squirting out. That is a visceral, realistic Jeremy Sonier scene that's how he likes to do it, and that's apparently how people really die with brain injuries. Yep. That man is Sandy Barnett, who played Alexander 
in Murder Party, he's just heavier and bald now. Well, he's he's dealing with the same time we're dealing with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unlike Jeremy, the saint of aging. Um, hey, I got to bring this up because I just saw a recent interview him. Him and fucking uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Like, M. Night Shyamalan just looks like he's getting younger as the years go by. <laughs> That's like Indians and Asians don't age, though, until they hit 90, and then it just goes all at once. Yeah, they get a, it catches up. But according to Macon and Jeremy, like, Macon and uh, Sandy had, like, a long history of being the ones that fought in all of their movies as kids. Uh, okay. So that's why, I mean, they could have hired anybody to yeah. play the con, right? And they wanted it to be Sandy that fucking fought Macon and he murdered in their, big, their first big movie, right? Yeah. They hoped for his big movie. But after Dwight kills him, he takes a run out of the bar. And on his way to his car, he takes his knife and he goes and he fucking tries to jab the tire on the limo. Knife slips and he cuts his own fucking hand open, right? Yep. Uh, He's not good at this. (laughs) And he gets in his car and oh shit, his fucking necklace is missing. Which we then cut to like inside the bar and people realizing that the guy's dead. And we see the key laying in a pool of blood on the floor, right? Yep. And just so you know, if you're ever going to slash somebody's tires, you got to commit. You can't, you can't, you can't limperous that shit. You got to commit or you're going to end up just like him. Yeah. The more you know. You just got to stab kind of hard like you're punching somebody. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I've, I've slashed a tire. You slashed a tire? You, yeah, you just got to commit. Can't poke it. But as the family's discovering their dead loved one in the uh, shitter floor, Dwight decides to steal their boss hog limo. And uh, it has a flat for some reason now, right? So he's trying to get away. And during this brilliant getaway, he starts hearing banging from the back of the limo. And he pulls over and a fucking boy gets out of the car and looks at all the blood covered on Dwight. Because he's got blood on him from his own hand and from killing the guy. And uh, he just looks at Dwight and says, did you hurt Wade? (laughs) Who the fuck's Wade? Who knows? Uh, Dwight says that he did and that Wade hurt his parents. The boy says that he does not think that Wade actually did that. And then he just takes off running. Exposition. That's, yeah. that's all we get right there. Dwight runs to the forest and starts scoping out a neighborhood when he pops out on the other side. And he notices a house with a pile of newspapers. So he assumes the house is vacant. He goes in, showers, cuts his hair and his beard off, right? He just completely shaves it off, bandages up his hand, steals some nice clothes, watches the news. And there is nothing on the news about the murder. He heads out, ditches the old clothes in like a dumpster or something. I just know he gets rid of them. Yeah. And hitchhikes away. We cut to a suburban home and we see a woman leaving her kids for the day with a babysitter. And that's actually Jeremy's two daughters with daughter number three on the way. Oh, really? Guy couldn't get his son, man. He kept trying. It happens to some people. (laughs) But as the mom tries to leave the house, she sees Dwight while she's backing up. And we find out that it is his sister, Sam. So that's who he wrote the postcard to. They go out to lunch and he asks her if she received said postcard and she said she is not. And she says that she already knew that Wade was being released and she tries to tell him that she has what he's owed from the estate and he tells her he doesn't want any of it. And she lets him know that she now has two kids and he says, I know. Because he stalked her a bit. He's talking about like he went to their old vacation area and he saw her. So yeah. he wanted to talk to her. That lets you know how long he's been a hobo. Exactly. Because the kids were, I mean, they were in like the five and younger range, but he hasn't seen them. Yeah. Formally anyways. He goes ahead and breaks the big news to Sam. I killed him. She says she hopes that he suffered. And Dwight realized that they never called the police. And that they need to go check on Sam's kids immediately because if they didn't call the police, it's because they're handling it themselves. Exactly. I wasn't expecting him to just blurt it out 
that quick in their little diner conversation. Here in the house during the attack, he knows what the fuck he's doing. It's really weird. Yeah. But if you think about it, it's just trying to like outsmart the people to kill you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. how do I survive? Which is different than I'm like, how do I get a gun and shoot somebody? But it, oh, he no, does no, kind of no. go. I'm just saying to me, it was kind of weird how like how unqualified for this job he was and then how smart he was at the same time about it. No, no, I'm with you on that. It was just it, I was taken. I didn't think that he was going to tell his sister that he killed, right. killed him. Just uh, straight up too. Yeah. But they make it to Sam's house and find out the kids are are fine. And then Sam rightfully fucking slaps her brother across the face. (laughs) And he lets her know that the car is registered to her house. And they probably know where she lives. And that she has to go out of town. Like, he has this whole conversation with her from the backyard through the door. She's unlocked. Yeah, she won't let him in. But he tells her, you got to leave town. You can even call the police when you leave. And Dwight helps her pack the car. And her and the kids leave town. But on the way out, she delivers this fucking awesome line. I would forgive you if you were crazy, but you're not. You're weak. It tells you the relationship between the brother and sister right there in that one line. And that she's always had to clean up his shit. Right. And now she's still having to clean up his. Even though she understands it, she's still having to clean up his shit. It's a very strong and well-delivered line. Yeah. But that night, now that Dwight's alone, he waits in her house with all the lights off, and he decides to go through a box of keepsakes in the uh, Paranormal Activity Toby closet, right, where the girls are in, in part three. It, it reminded me of that. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's actually about. Jeremy's childhood home. It was his parents' house. Okay. Yeah. So he's like, I, he knew the house very well, so when he wrote the script, he was, oh, he could do this, and he could do that, envisioning his parents' house, and then when they were trying to find a place to film it, He's like, fuck it. Let's just go to the house I envisioned, right? But while he's going through the keepsakes, he hears a car park outside and like the fucking belts are screeching and shit. So he knows it's an old beater, kind of like the one he drove. And he looks out and he sees the Clevelands in his Pontiac. It was Wade Cleveland that he killed. So it's the Cleveland family, right? I thought we were talking about Peter Griffin's neighbors. I'm Uh, glad you clarified that. (laughs) I knew you were going to go there. But uh, he had found weapons at the house with his farm implement in hand, right? He takes his pitchfork. He preps to defend himself, right? He goes all home alone in the house and he turns on a light upstairs to let the people outside know that he's inside. And he turns a faucet on at the top of the stairs and closes the door to that bathroom. He goes and hides. His ruse works because he sees that the car empties out and he hears people sneaking through the yard. He looks out the back window and he sees a guy with a shotgun. He grabs the spare key to the Pontiac and goes and hides as they break in. But he's sneaking through the house with like a Maglite flashlight and he's laying down in front of the couch. And one of the guys comes in and he's trying to get the flashlight off. And the scared look on his face is he fucking panics and just puts his hand over it and lays on it. Yeah. I don't know if that was scripted or if he couldn't get the flashlight off. But it is so realistic and he fucking performs that scene so well. Yes, he is. God, he's good in this. But the sink trick works. One of the guys goes and heads upstairs to open the door. And he takes the opportunity to run outside and get in the Pontiac because they drove his car there. I don't know why. I guess because they had it and he stole their car, right? On his way out, he hears the man upstairs say, I got him. And the guy's got a crossbow and he fires a bolt at Dwight and misses. And then the man with the shotgun steps out in front of the car as Dwight's trying to drive away. And he's like, fuck it. And he just runs over the man. And he gets out to ask the unconscious man some questions. Were you coming for me or for her? I just want to say, so the reason why the guy had a crossbow, he's like, Jeremy said, well, they'd maybe want a silent weapon. But the real reason is he was, <laughs> he was having a fight with the police and everybody in the neighborhood to film the scene. Oh, And they okay. filmed it at three o'clock in the morning. And he couldn't have, they're like, you can't have blanks going off. 
Gotcha. Three o'clock in the morning. Because it's not Hollywood. This isn't like a neighborhood set aside or a back lot. This is fucking parents' house. Yeah. And uh, so crossbows are silent and the shotgun never gets fired. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty funny, right? Interesting. But, like when I'm watching the movie, nothing seemed out of place to me. I'm like, no. oh, these are hunters in Virginia and they had a crossbow. Well, and just, they want to murder somebody without the police coming. Well, the, they're avenging someone who just served time. So like they're smart about it and they're going to be quiet. And the shotgun was just there for if shit went belly up. That's how I took it. Why does Jeremy know so much about how to commit a crime and cover it up and whatnot? Some deep-rooted issues there. <laughs> Dwight attempts to drag the body of the man he just hit out of the way as another bolt whips by. And he grabs the guy's shotgun and awkwardly chases after the bowman into the backyard. And you know what it makes me think of? Star Wars A New Hope. Han Solo, Harrison Ford chasing the one stormtrooper. And, and the guy goes around the corner. The other ones. Yeah, except for that it didn't happen. He goes in the backyard and he starts looking around. He's like, oh shit, it's dark. <laughs> Fuck this, I'm getting in my car. But that's how it would happen if you were this yep. guy. He's not a trained killer. So he runs back to the car, grabs the knocked out guy, and sticks him in the trunk of his car. And as he's doing it, he takes an arrow to the knee. So he used to be a warrior like them until he took an arrow to the knee. And uh, apparently, like, that was unassisted. He, Macon was like, I'm not in shape. And I had to, like, pick this guy up and fucking throw him in the car. Oh, okay. Because he didn't throw him in the truck. I think it's the back seat at this point. He goes in the trunk later. Yeah. Yeah. But Dwight drives the Pontiac to a field, takes the guy's pistol and money that was, I think it was in the glove box or something. Or maybe it was on him. I don't remember. And uh, barely gets the guy in the trunk. That's the scene where he's having a hard time lifting him. Yeah. And he grabs his tools out of the trunk because he had some shit in there, right? Because he's lifting out of that car. And you want the guy to have uh, a way to get out. And uh, he grabs a hacksaw out of the tool bag. And this scene, man. Oof. But he wedges the fucking bolt of the car door. And he goes to town on it with a hacksaw. And he's screaming in pain. And he cuts the end of it off, right? Like just enough to look normal. <sighs> and then he makes a pharmacy run. To get himself some meds, like some, he got like fucking antiseptic and, and stuff, right? To clean the wound. Yeah. Some Tylenol, <laughs> that shit ain't going to cut it. And uh, some stuff to close the wound. He pays the man with bloody money. <laughs> and he tries to make up some bullshit excuse. And then he just gives up and he's like, um, and leaves. Yeah. Funny thing is they, they had to like pay to use a pharmacy, right? And they had a guy there to play the pharmacist. And uh, somebody on the set was like, this guy's not acting like a pharmacist. It might have even been one of the store guys. And Jeremy's yeah. like, fuck it. And he just grabbed the pharmacist. He's like, you do it. <laughs> so it was the actual pharmacist from the drugstore. No shit. So you get that realistic, visceral reaction. <laughs> I like making fun of myself. That way you can do it. <sighs> but Dwight gets back in the Pontiac. He gets in the back seat. And he bravely tries to remove what's left of the bolt from his leg. And he fucking gives up. Like the acting here where he's like screaming in pain, trying to pull the bolt out with the pliers. And he straight up takes his ass to the hospital. I had an accident on my leg. Passes the fuck out. He wakes up in the hospital. Luckily, he's not handcuffed. Like if you'd have got dropped off with a stab or a gun wound, you'd be handcuffed with the police waiting there. Uh -huh. But for some reason, he wasn't. And he's able to flee the scene in scrubs. It's different in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> he's able to flee the scene in scrubs after he notices that his wound's closed up. And he makes it back to the car and checks to see if the man's still alive in the trunk. He is, and he's pissed. And Dwight <laughs> takes off, and uh, he goes to like one of those like Salvation Army drop-off clothes points and just steals some clothes and puts them on, right? Yeah. He goes back to his sister's house, turns off the running water, cleans up the glass, boards up the window and leaves. He fixed her house up. It wasn't her fault, right? Then he gets back in the car and uh, the the 
man's phone receives a text, right? Because I think he had it in the glove box and he heard it. And yeah. he sees that it says, where are you? And uh, the man starts <laughs> screaming in panic. Like, I mean, the guy's freaking out in the back, rightfully so, right? And uh, he's like, let me out of the truck. And Dwight says, not until I get a gun. Yeah, I can get you a gun. The guy sounds so calm when he delivers that line. Yeah. Dwight decides that his best action would be to track down his old high school buddy that was real big in ROTC and join the military. His name is Ben. He goes to the mom's house, and the mom kind of remembers him, right? Because I think she says something like, it's so bad what happened to your parents, boy. And uh, she lets him know where he works. It's like a nightclub or something, right? The mom at some point, though, is like, he doesn't go to work till late. Would you like to drink some tea? And he's like, I would love some tea. <laughs> and it just really kind of explains his character. Like, he was probably a proper guy yeah. before he became the avenging hobo. <laughs> but he drinks some tea with Ben's mop, and he heads to the metal club to meet up with Ben. Yeah, because Ben's like the sound guy, I think, if I remember right. Well, he thinks he's in the band. And then he talks to somebody and finds out that he's just the bartender. The lady that he finds to ask about Ben says he doesn't get off till late, so he goes in and waits it off in a parking lot, right? Ben comes out with headphones in. Big guy. It's actually Buzz from fucking Home Alone, which is why I made the Home Alone joke. I was like, God damn, he looks familiar. And I looked up, and it was Buzz from Home Alone. And uh, man, he didn't do anything in between these, did he? I think he did, actually. I don't, I don't ever remember us talking and being like, dude, that's, that's he's from Home Alone. He's got shit in his IMDb, okay? But uh, the way that Dwight is sneaking up behind this big motherfucker that's ex-military, and he's got his headphones on or his earbuds in, I was expecting Dwight to get fucked up. Oh, yeah. But... Uh, Ben sees him, takes the headphones off, and he's like, he realizes it's Dwight, right? And he's like, you piece the fuck out the same year El Duce got hit by a train. And do you know, do you know what that reference is from? Uh-uh. El Duce, he was, he was in a punk band. I can't remember. But that's the guy that said Courtney Love hired him oh, to kill yeah. Kurt Cobain. And then he randomly got hit by yep. a train, right? Ben let him know that he put the first 200 miles on this here pickup truck, stapling up missing posters of Dwight. And Dwight's like, that's funny. I never really thought about that. Like, people, like, worrying about him missing. So this motherfucker's been in hiding for, like, 10, 15 years, right? Yeah. He lets Ben know that he needs a gun. And Ben takes him to his house to to help him with this. He really is going to help him. And he needs to know what he's going to do with the gun. And he's like, I don't really want to know about the crime. The less I know, the better. Yeah. But I need to know what fucking gun to give you, right? And uh, Ben ends up giving him a Mini 14 that he got at a gun show. And it's not traceable back to him. And he starts to hum the A-team theme because the A-team gun, <laughs> apparently that was improv. Okay. The humming. And it cost Jeremy quite a bit of money to keep the humming <laughs> out of their very limited budget, but he didn't want to cut it. Okay. Like, it just really fit, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, I got, because he's showing him all these different guns he has. And he's like, I give you this, I give you that. And, and Dwight says, I don't want anything valuable. I don't want anything sentimental to you. And that's when he's like, well, what are you using it for? You're right. Cause he wants to know what to give him. Yeah. And that's when he's like, well, I'll just give you, I bought this gun literally cause it's from 18. Right. <laughs> and it just, it really fit. And it, it added that visceral reality to the film <laughs> because you made fun of me. I'm going to keep saying visceral more than I was planning on. Ben let him know that he thought about calling the cops when he first saw him, but he feels like he should just train them instead. And that's where a normal action movie would have gone. It would have been a training montage. Yeah. With like shooting dummies and stuff. With the A-team theme playing yes, the entire probably. time. <laughs> Dwight lets him know that he just needs somewhere quiet. And Ben lets him know that we're on fucking 16 acres right now. You can do whatever the fuck you want. Dwight drives the car out on the property and he takes like a, a gallon of water. And he opens the trunk and gives it to the guy while holding the gun on him, right? 
He finds out that they were coming for him and not his sister. And he asked if he could turn himself into the police. And they're like, no, <laughs> you can't do what you did and just set away safe in a jail cell. We're going to get our revenge, right? He also finds out throughout this conversation that Wade, the man he stabbed for murdering his parents, in fact, didn't kill his parents. Yep. That's little Wade. Big Wade, the father, had actually killed the parents, but he would have been on his third strike. And so would have... I can't think of his name, but the guy that's in the trunk currently, right? Yeah. So little Wade was the only one that could take the time and not get fucked for it. You don't fuck with somebody else's family, sir. Dwight decides to ask him about the boy in the car, but uh, he tells him it's none of his concern. Foreshadowing. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but Dwight throws him the flip phone and tells him to call his family for a meetup. And the dude tricks him into thinking he's actually calling his family for a meetup and leaving a voicemail. <laughs> He's like, where am I? And he's like, we're in Kentucky. And the guy's like, you've been to Kentucky, boy? It's like, it doesn't look like it. But uh, Dwight goes in for the phone, and the guy takes the gun from him and, and pops out, and there's a struggle, right? He gets the gun and stands up, and he goes to shoot Dwight in the face right as his fucking jaw is blown off of his goddamn skull. Jeremy got his jaw removed. Is that what you were talking about earlier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a reoccurring thing in these movies. Was it reoccurring or just the fact that he didn't get to do it? Uh... <laughs> um. And Ben comes out of the woods. Obviously, it was Ben. And I like how it was realistic. He shot once and missed. And the guy's like, what the fuck just happened? And then his jaw got blown off. Most movies, it would just happen. Yeah. But Ben let him know that he had to wait till he was within his legal right to shoot and kill the man. And Ben helps him load the body up because he wants it the fuck off his property. He's like, what, yep. a, what about the jaw and brain over there? It's like the coyotes will get it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Ben wants to help him, so he swaps him to buckshot and gives him shooting lessons with the buckshot and the shotgun, right? Yes, because he actually says, he's like, because that's when he gives him shit, because when dude's first coming out of the trunk, he, he takes a shot at him right. from two yards and misses him, and Ben's like, you missed him from two yards, I'm switching you over to buckshot. <laughs> See, I thought it was a warning shot, but still. Uh, we may never know. He clearly needed help. <laughs> yes. But Ben gives him some tips, and... You can really tell that Dwight's way the fuck out of his league and doesn't know what he's doing. So luckily he had a buddy that was in the military, right? And Ben tells him to give no speeches. That's how he'll die. Because if he gives a speech and to just point the gun and fucking shoot and get out of there. Yep. Dwight leaves and goes to eat at his last meal at like a fucking Denny's or something. <laughs> like, right? And uh, he's going to go kill all the Clevelands. Ben, of course, tries to follow him, but he figures out that Dwight stole the battery out of his truck. So he can't. And they had like a moment where he was talking about this one time they went and got their first lap dance with a stripper and he still had the Polaroid and Dwight's like, if you ever find that, burn it. Yeah. So he decides to melt the fucking Polaroid in the microwave while he drinks a beer. And Jeremy on the fucking commentary said it took months to shoot that scene. I don't understand why. Maybe to get it to like boil over and burn the way he like, wanted or something. At least look good for camera. But it was supposed to like symbolize like the regression of Dwight at that point. And Ben's like, he's on his own, right? Like his old Dwight's gone. Let's burn yeah. it away. Let's wash the slate clean. And um, Dwight pulls over and has a nice puke session right before he pulls up the Cleveland house. Real vomit. Jeremy and Macon said, if you're going to have a vomit scene in a movie, just fucking puke it up anyways. Yep. I remember when I saw that, I was like, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs> Dwight sneaks up to the house with his bird shot, right? And he finds that the house is empty. And I think when the brother called on the cell phone, he's like, they're out fucking hunting, you stupid shit, right? He says something like that. So they're out. I thought they meant hunting for him, by the way, That's not animals. what I thought, too. 
Um, but he takes this opportunity to search their house and find their absurd amount of guns and get rid of them, which apparently when Jeremy and Macon were on the European circuit doing interviews after getting the movie signed at Cannes, everybody thought the movie was satire because the amount of guns found in the house. It's like, no, that's just Virginia. Yeah. That's how we do it in the South. <laughs> but he gets rid of all the fucking guns and pretty much checks all over the house, right? Like it's pretty efficient. Yeah. He goes out to the lake on their property and throws all the guns in and he notices big Wade's grave. And then you see him go in the house and start chugging water over and over again. I didn't really know why. And then you see him taking a piss on the grave because that's the guy that killed his parents. And, uh, I mean, that really just sums Dwight up as a whole, right? And it's a, to me, it's something somebody would do. See, that's what's so funny. Cause I think during the montage, you actually see that he's prepped his fort at that time too. And when he's by the sink, just hammering water, I'm sitting here and I think I even said out loud to the wife, I'm like, He's going to have to get up and pee so many times from behind his foot. And then it cuts to the other shot. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's fucking fantastic. But he goes back inside. He barricades up the whole house and he starts to wait for him to come home with a shotgun. But while he's waiting in the house, he fucking actually falls asleep. Where's some shit I would do. I feel like it's so realistic. Yes. And um, he's awakened by the lights turning on because he's really fucking bad at this. And he fell asleep <laughs> on his own stakeout. Right. And. He figures out the lights on a timer, and then he's still alone. So then he digs to the house, and he finds a photo album and goes through it and sees pictures of a boy growing up with red hair, kind of like the boy in the limo. Funny story, they bought the photo album with the photos in it on eBay. <laughs> no <laughs> shit. It's just somebody's family, right? And um, who the fuck... Who the fuck sells a family photo album on eBay? It's exactly what I thought when I read that. Uh, but yeah. And yeah. then I was going to say, who the fuck buys that? But apparently Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> but he ends up deciding to sleep through the night. I guess he thinks it's safe. And he undoes his, you know, fail proof trap at the door, which is a jar of pennies. I guess because if he fell asleep, he'd hear the pennies rolling, right? Yeah, totally. And uh, he decides to take, oh, Terry, that's his fucking name. <laughs> Terry Cleveland's body out of the trunk. And bury it. While he's burying it on the property next to Big Wade, he hears the phone ring, and he decides that he should go inside and leave a voicemail. It gave him, like, this great idea. So he goes in the house and leaves a message. We don't get to hear it yet. He sets up shop, hides again, and the rest of the family comes in, and they run in, and they immediately want to check the voicemail for some reason. I guess maybe because Teddy's called or something, right? Yeah, and he's put the whole house back together, so it yeah. doesn't, doesn't look disheveled or anything. And they hear a speech from Dwight about how he killed Wade and Teddy. By my count, that's two of yours and two of mine. He hears them say that they're going to go to fucking Pittsburgh and kill the sister. So then he just steps out from behind the corner and just starts firing. He takes a few shots and he gets the man that's with the two sisters, which one of the sisters is Lexi from Murder Party. And the other one is Jane Brady from the Brady Bunch. And he said he was very lucky to get her. She was like very professional, especially with the fucking gun scene that's about to come up. Yeah. And it was just the casting company founder and he was glad to have her a part of it. But the man goes down and the two women say, don't shoot us right as the boy from the limo sneaks up behind him. He lets them know that he took all their guns and then he's been there for a while coming up with reasons to kill him or not to kill him. While he's giving the speech, the boy shoots him with the fucking shotgun. He should have listened to Ben. Ben told him no speeches. Yep. He lets the boy go and tells him that he knows the boy William is his half brother. 
and that he just needs to not be a part of this because the fucking family lines can't die, right? The women go for a Tech 9 that he missed that's under the uh, recliner, and a shootout ensues. We see William outside watching the muzzle flashes go off as he runs away, and then we cut to inside the house, and the women are dead on the ground, and Dwight is on the ground bleeding out, repeating over and over again, the keys are in the car. The keys are in the car. We cut to his sister's house where the postman drops off a postcard through the slot to a pile of mail. So it's obviously been some time. And there was like a tragedy. There was a storm and there's like trees down all in our yard and it's roped off. Yeah. And it was like to say the oncoming storm has came and passed, right? Okay. The end. Where, and if I just zoned out when you said it, who is it that actually explains the, I thought the, the half brother got explained. No, no, no. Teddy tells him it's none of his concern. Which leads you to believe something. He figures it out when he flips the photo album. I thought it got explained because it was all because his dad was fucking around on his own mom. I said that it was Big Wade that killed. I forgot to say why. Okay. It just went deeper into what you think what happened to your family was bad. Look at what was happening to our family. Great fucking movie. Yeah. I mean, it. I had no, I love it when I know nothing about a movie and I just <laughs> go watch it. And like you said, fucking Macon Blair is what makes this movie. Like I said, his pantomime, his acting, like 99% of this movie, I fucking buy every bit of it and I'm scared with him and I'm right. scared for him and I don't get affected like that much. That's it's why just, I'm gushing. It's just so realistic. Like everything about it, the situation, like nothing phenomenal happened. Yeah. It was, it was all pretty much normal shit. Fucking the way he reacted to everything, though, the fact that he didn't immediately go in as like this fucking trained international assassin. And, and even when he had help, he still sucked at it. And his buddy gave him the advice. Yeah. Don't give a speech. And that's how he died. Exactly. And I don't know, like just shot for shot, the movie is so great. And that's what happens when you have the director being the cinematographer and the cameraman as well. It's a lot of hats to wear and that can't normally happen, but I feel like that's something this movie needed and his best friend being the star of the film, like just the fact they could just work off each other so well, Yep, really showed that that was their strength. Yeah. Um, really, really good movie. And, um, it, it got into deeper stuff with like, you know, the, the intertwinings between the two family and like, you think that I'm the bad guy. Well, I think that you're the bad guy. And then, right. and then we're left with, you know, the guy we followed through this whole thing is obviously going to lay there and bleed out. And then we've got this, the half brother running away right. to go fetch the car in the woods that like, how did this whole thing affect him? It gets deep without getting too deep. If that makes any sense. It does. And it explains everything without over explaining things and spoon feeding it to you. And you really get that vibe that Jeremy said about like changing the film filters and the regression. Yeah. Dwight, like he doesn't think Dwight's the hero. He knows Dwight regressed to like a primitive version of himself. Yep. Just want to revenge base carnal needs. Right. And I don't just everything about the movie is really well done. And if you're going to put everything on the line to make a movie, which I really don't feel responsible for anybody with children to do, <laughs> but it, it worked out for them. And like you said, he didn't have the perfect storm at cans to help him, but for his first movie that he fully wrote and directed himself and he fully funded it himself with the cast and crew fucking knocked it out of the park. Yep. And, and you literally, I swear to God, just took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> like I said, guys, this was part one of the Jeremy Sonier series. I will finish editing part two for next week and I will have it out for you guys by the weekend. And then we will go back to our normal schedule other than a short holiday break for Christmas. 
Thank you so much for downloading, spreading the word, and please do not forget to rate and review the show. Also, do not forget to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at SBIS Podcast. We would love to hear any comments or suggestions you guys have at sbispodcast at gmail.com. See you next week and thanks for listening. I'd forgive you if you were crazy, but you're not. You're weak.